Hi, Think Research listeners. This is Brendan Keegan, one of the hosts of the show. The episode you're about to hear was recorded over Zoom, and the audio quality is a little different than what you're used to hearing on Think Research. We've had to adapt to this new way of working, just like you. We're also launching a new series and want to hear from you. Tell us how you've been adapting to working remotely and how your clinical or translational research has changed. You can either tweet a response at Harvard Catalyst using the hashtag COVID-19 or using the voice memo app on your phone, record a short clip of yourself, try to keep it under two minutes, and email it to us at onlineeducation@catalyst.harvard.edu. We might use your clip in an upcoming episode. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing more stories of clinical research. From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Many of us are all too familiar with common types of cancer and their treatments. For decades, cancer tumors have been surgically removed, targeted by chemotherapy, or killed off by radiation therapy. When these treatments aren't enough, researchers and oncologists must take a closer look at the tumor, the patients, the therapies, and more. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Dr. Osama Rama researches the acute differences not only among patients, but among the tumors that may or may not respond to regular course of treatment. In response to this, targeted immunotherapy specifically tailored to a tumor's genomics is necessary in killing cancer. Dr. Rama is a medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute who specializes in GI oncology with a research focus on cancer immunotherapy. Hi, Dr. Rama. Welcome to the show. As a medical oncologist, your work focuses on different types of cancer and their treatments. Can you tell us more about how cancer is treated? Traditionally, uh, cancer had been either treated by uh, surgery uh, especially when the cancer is localized to one area that you can actually remove it. Uh, radiation therapy is another modality of treatment. And both uh, surgery and radiation therapy, they're meant to uh, be more of a localized uh, treatment. That means uh, it treats only the cancer in one area where you deliver this modality. The surgical way of doing this is that you just remove the, the tumor. However, with the radiation therapy, actually uh, trying to kill cancer cells by delivering uh, radiation that can kill the DNA of the cancer cells, and therefore they cannot uh, survive, they cannot replicate anymore. Um, and there are actually many other mechanisms by which radiation uh, can be helpful to treat uh, cancer in general. And then we have what we call the systemic way of treating uh, cancer, and that's using uh, chemotherapy. And chemotherapy had been a, a modality to treat cancer for um, many uh, decades now. Um, and the way that chemotherapy works, it 
has also many different mechanisms of action. And each, each of those target uh, one part of the cycle by which the cancer cell replicate. Most of them also uh, works by uh, suppressing the DNA of the tumor and therefore the tumor cannot form another tumor, meaning a cancer cell cannot form another cancer cell uh, and they die off. And then um, we have the targeted therapy approach uh, and that had a kind of uh, started in the early 2000s um, when um, uh, tumors were noted to not just be a similar entity as of breast cancer or ovarian cancer and or labeled as one, right? It's either ovarian or colorectal cancer, or it's a breast cancer, but rather it is more personalized way to go after cancer. So two patients may have the same tumor, but their tumor may look differently when you start looking at the genomics of the tumor. Um, and what does that mean? That means that if there's a certain mutation in a certain gene that can actually drive the cancer, that can make abnormal or not normal pro uh, proteins, and those proteins can lead to addiction of the cancer cells to grow and make more cancer cells. So that's what's called a personalized uh, medicine or personalized cancer treatment where we sequence uh, the uh, tumors and we try to identify what uh, gene could be a good target and keep in mind there are many different genes that we could find that are abnormal or mutated but there are genes or proteins where we have a targeted treatment for and there are others that we don't. Um, and where we find that, then the drug of choice could be matched with that kind of mutation or gene mutation uh, or abnormal protein, and that could actually help to suppress the cancer cells. Lastly, which is the what's been called the breakthrough of cancer treatment um, in the, uh, in the past decade, uh, which is uh, the cancer immunotherapy. Uh, where we actually try to mobilize or activate the immune cells to go after cancer. And we can talk about this more. What are some important differences that you see among patients and their various cancers? Right. So uh, cancer is just a very big word, and it's a very general word that uh, underneath it you have many different types and subtypes, right? So you have uh, cancers that actually tend to have uh, a good prognosis. Uh, meaning those are uh, cancers that are in general detected earlier. And when they're detected earlier, it could be treated more aggressively and patients can uh, do as well as a patient who doesn't have cancer if, if you, you do the treatment as um, uh, recommended. Um, example of that is breast cancer, which is very common. And uh, if you remove a lump of the breast cancer and you basically administered what's needed afterward if, uh, if needed, such as radiation therapy, chemotherapy, hormone therapy, you, most of the patients with very early detected breast cancer, they actually survive it uh, and they have a normal lifespan. And uh, you think about the same thing in terms of uh, colorectal cancer, for example, if you detect what we call a stage one, so very early colon cancer and you remove that, then patients tend to do well. 
On the other hand, you have cancers that are uh, more aggressive, uh, that they are hard to detect. Uh, and in a big example of that, or an important example of that, is pancreatic cancer, a cancer that I specialize in treating, um, where most of the patients present where it's too late. Um, and that's not because they didn't pay attention to their symptoms, but rather because there was no symptoms to begin with. Because mm -hmm. those type of cancers spread before you even start developing symptoms. And that's what drives the, that's one reason what drives the bad prognosis of these cancers, that they are advanced at the time that we um, uh, discovered them. Um, and also, uh, you know, there are cancers that uh, replicate much faster than other cancers. There are cancers that um, go to the other organs and develop metastases um, using either the blood uh, or the lymph nodes, for example. And that's differences in, in, in different tumors. So tumors are different by the way they metastasize by the way they grow, by whether they found early and you don't have, um, uh, and you do have symptoms where they could be removed or they actually uh, form and metastasize where you don't have time, enough time uh, to detect them early and therefore they can, that can drive a um, worse prognosis. Patients also are different because it's not just the cancer itself is what we call the host as well. The host is the person who has, unfortunately, host the tumor. Mm -hmm. And um, what's the difference between patients is that you actually can see the same tumor in many different patients, and um, it would function or act differently. Mm -hmm. We don't understand fully the reason behind that, but there is a lot of research going on to understand this more. So there are things that come to mind such as, well, are these patients have different comorbidities? Do they have different type of um, uh, diseases that they're pretty much not uh, in a good shape as other patients maybe? We call that performance status, functional status. And the better the functional status is, the better the patients do and respond to treatment. Um, patients may have different immune system and or they do have different immune system and that also uh, can can dictate how they do when they get cancer uh, we do believe that most of us do have developed cancer those cancer cells happen in all of us but our body our immune system is designed to take care of that and kill those cancer cells however it is when the cancer evades the immune system where it starts to actually develop and further and, and then people would have problems with that. We also know that there is an environment effect, especially common cancers like breast cancer and colon cancer, for example. We know that the more active you are, the less likely to get cancer in general and you're less you're, you, you would do better if you get cancer and you are in a very good shape, you exercise and you have good nutrition uh, and, balanced, uh, and a balanced nutrition. And lastly, we also currently trying to understand what we call a microbiome, the bacteria that lives in the gut uh, and 
that bacteria also is, is found to play a role on the immunity. And how is that controlled cancer or doesn't control cancer it depends on what different bugs that we all have and we all carry. It's very hot area of research. Mm. Um, can you talk a bit more about your research and how you're studying these differences? Of course. So um, my uh, role uh, at uh, uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where I, I work in uh, uh, Harvard Medical School, is to, uh, one, develop novel immunotherapy drugs for cancer, and not, not just one type of cancer. The way we develop these drugs is um, we have a, say, new target that we, we are in the process of developing different drugs to go after that. So we try to test the drug in any type of cancer. Sometimes we have tested in specific type of cancer based on what um, preclinical data we have, what animal studies that we have. Researchers have been trying to actually energize the immune system to treat cancer for many, many years. The story goes back to the early 1900, actually, when um, Dr. Uh, Coley at Memorial Sloan Kettering injected tumors or injected patients with tumors with bacteria because the thought was that if our immune system can kill bacteria, then if we inject that bacteria in the tumor, then the immune system would come after that and try to kill it and therefore kill the cancer. At that time, obviously, those, those attempts failed because we didn't have enough understanding of how our immune, our immune system function uh, and what's the influence of cancer on our immune system. That part was missing. And then later after that, uh, we start developing what we call cancer vaccines. Um, and those pretty much the early 90s, also in early 2000 to 2010. Uh, and I was involved in many of these trials when I was at the National Cancer Institute at NIH, where we actually developed uh, those cancer vaccines simply by looking at what different proteins or abnormal or unusual proteins that cancer cells may carry or have. And what we wanted to do, obviously, is just like flu vaccine. We wanted to trigger the immune system to go after uh, cancer cells. So what we've seen, we actually have seen that the body does react and the immune system does react. We have seen in the blood of those patients evidence that the immune system recognized those abnormal protein and tried to act against them and tried to kill them. The reason, however, why those cancer vaccines had not seen a light and did not change the way we treat cancer and they were not efficacious is we didn't know what that reason was for a very, very long time. And it wasn't until the discovery of what we call today immune checkpoint uh, and the development of drugs that are called immune checkpoint inhibitors that we started to understand the field. And then the field started to focus on uh, the different markers or biomarkers 
that are presented on the immune cells and the cancer cells. And those are pretty much labels that are expressed on the surface of these cells, meaning they sit on the surface of these cells. And one important or famous biomarker is called the CTLA-4. And CTLA-4 sits on the immune cell. When the immune cell gets close to the cancer cell, the cancer cell also has its own label that interact with the CTLA-4 label. Or if you want to uh, think about it, like you are actually using a key to lock a door, right? And that key fits exactly uh, the, uh, um, the lock, right? And that's exactly how these markers function. They fit exactly together. And once they see each other, you basically lock the immune cell. So that's the cancer cell locking the immune cells and not allowing the immune cell to function and therefore to die. Mm. The cancer cell, therefore the immune cell would die. So drugs were developed to actually stop this from happening. And therefore the immune cell can survive and can remain active and can kill the cancer. And along those lines, um, there was also a, uh, the discovery of a very similar uh, markers on the immune cells and the cancer cells. The discovery is known as the PD-1, PD-L1 pathway, which stands for the program cell death. Um, and PD-L1 stands for program cell death ligand. And the discovery was that those uh, markers or labels that you see on the cancer cell and the immune cells, so the PD-1 on the immune cell, the PD-L1 on the uh, tumor, when they get together, the same exact thing happened that we talked about with uh, uh, CTLA-4. They actually communicate and the cancer cell figure out a way to shut the immune cell down and kill it. And what's very interesting is that physiologically, this mechanism of action does exist in our body. And the reason it does exist, because if we get an infection, our immune system will be very active. And our immune system will try to actually kill that infection. Hmm. Unless we have a way to put break on the immune system, this is going to keep acting and then we'll develop inflammation and we'll die. So the, the normal physiology of our body allow us or allow our immune system to stop itself from overreacting. And what's unfortunate is that the cancer cells hijack this mechanism and actually take advantage of that and use it to stop the immune system, but this time not to kill the infection, but rather to kill the cancer. So those discoveries have truly change the face of cancer treatment. Since the discovery of those uh, receptors or biomarkers or markers, you want to call them, many drugs have been developed to stop the interaction between these two. And the story goes on and on and on these days where FDA had approved many of those immunotherapy, cancer immunotherapy drugs for many, many indications, and the list keeps getting longer and longer. However, we still have a long way to go because not everyone responds. 
Um, for example, in lung cancer, only 30% of patients respond and 70% don't. In some cancers, like the cancers that I treat, pancreatic cancer, only 1% of those patients respond and the rest wow. don't. So that's, that's basically where the field is heading. And that's what I do for my research is trying to move those cancer immunotherapy to make them work in cancers where they have not traditionally worked, mm. specifically in GI cancers, which includes uh, colorectal cancer and pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, and others. Are we also trying to build on this discovery by making these therapies work better because they do stop working after some time. So in a year or so, those therapies stop working and we're starting to understand what we call a resistance mechanism. How does the tumor figure out a way to actually resist the immune cells or the immune uh, system even if we're able to activate it using what I just described. And we are discovering that actually it's not just the CTLA4, PD1, PDL1 story. There are many, many other what we call inhibitors or suppressors that either the cancer cell has or the other cells around the cancer cells have that actually try to suppress the immune system and say, hey, stop. Uh, and try to evade that immune activation that we create with those drugs. Mm. And you just mentioned inhibitors. What are checkpoint inhibitors and how have they influenced research today? So uh, with CTLA4, PD-1, PD-L1, what we call immune checkpoints, they're called immune checkpoints because they actually check on our immune system. They're checkpoints on our immune system. Drugs that inhibit or stop that are called checkpoint inhibitors because mm. they inhibit the interaction between those checkpoints and therefore allowing the immune system to bypass that checkpoint and reactivate again. And those are the drugs that I was just mentioning that transformed the way we treat cancer. Can you describe what the kind of clinical trials you conduct look like? Like what happens um, in practice when you're doing your clinical trials? Yes. So we have two types of clinical trials. We have what we call early drug development clinical trials or what we call phase one. And we also have sort of late uh, drug development clinical trials. That's what's called phase two or phase three. Phase one is when you introduce the drug first to a human being, right? So mm -hmm. the a target, say that we were just talking about the immune checkpoints, right? Mm -hmm. So say that we discover a drug, an immune checkpoint X, that we believe it's a very good target for us to go after. And we work with our colleagues in pharmaceutical companies to actually develop those drugs or manufacture or make those drugs. And, and then we wanna try them on um, patients. So usually patients who enroll on phase one trials, they're patients who have cancer and are treated for um, their cancer by their oncologist with using the modalities we started this podcast talking about, chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, 
But unfortunately, they got to the point where those therapies or those modalities are no longer working. So the standard of care, the FDA-approved drugs are no longer working. And they're looking to um, see whether investigational drug can work. So we get referrals from other physicians within our institution or actually across the globe where they come and ask us uh, to um, to see their patients or they send us their patients, refer their patients. And we sit down with the patients, explain what the target is, um, how does the drug work, what we've seen in uh, other patients, if we have other patients on a trial or what we've seen in the lab and why do we believe this could be a good fit for the patient. And also, we go over what we call eligibility criteria, so inclusion and exclusion criteria. Does the patient have certain type of cancer? Does the patient have certain amount of disease uh, or tumors, which we need, for example, to get a biopsy of? Does the patient have a blood level um, of hemoglobin that's so-and-so? Kidney numbers are so-and-so. So we go through the list, And then if the patient meet what we call the eligibility criteria, we offer the patient a study and the patient would sign a consent to allow us to administer those drugs with the understanding that this is investigational, meaning we're hoping to benefit, to see a benefit, but uh, this is a drug that's not used yet in the community and that's we're trying to develop this drug so we don't know yet what exactly the benefit and the risk could could be and then with the phase one studies we establish a dose we establish safety profile and then we move to a larger uh, phases and that would be phase two or phase three studies so in phase two we would say we actually need 20 or 50 patients with pancreatic cancer who had or had not received certain drugs. And now that we're looking to actually treat specifically this type of cancer with this specific drug. Um, And the phase two goal is to actually have a preliminary hint for activity, meaning those are pre-designed. So we say we want to see out of a I don't know, 50 patients that we treat, we want to see five or 10 patients that truly their tumor shrink and respond. And if we see that, then we're going to go to phase three study. And phase three study is what establishes traditionally FDA approval. Phase three studies are studies that are large and they have what we call a control. So patients are randomized to receive the therapy, investigational therapy, versus what they would have received in the, in, by their oncologist. So chemotherapy, whatever is the standard of care. And trying to establish whether our drugs or the investigational drugs are better than the standard. And that gets drug to approval. Um, you talked a little bit um, earlier on when you were um, explaining the different phases and how you... Uh, move the drug along about toxicity. So what is immunotoxicity and how is it related to side effects? Yeah, so pretty much everything, unfortunately, comes with a price. And the risk of the traditional therapies are very well known and very well defined, like chemotherapy. You know, everyone knows chemotherapy causes you to be 
tired and have nausea and vomiting. Mm -hmm. we, have, we have a very good understanding of that. And we know why. But when we actually start treating patients with immunotherapy years ago, a new phenomena started to emerge, which is the side effect of these drugs or toxicity or immunotoxicity. And to explain this more, most of the patients that receive immunotherapy, they actually do just fine. They don't even develop side effects. So what we're doing here, remember, is pretty much activating those immune cells, hoping they can go and kill the cancer. But what, happened, what would happen if the immune cells are misled and they actually go in the wrong direction? Instead mm -hmm. of going after the cancer cells, here they go after the normal cells. They go after the patient's own body. And that would mimic what you see in autoimmune diseases. That means the immune system attack the host, attack mm. the patient tissue or, or, or organs. And fortunately, we don't see that happening very often. But when we see it happening, it could affect any organ in the body, starting from the eye, the skin, all the way to the vital organs, including lungs, a bowel, liver, kidneys, uh, neurons, and brain, and so forth. Most common side effects we see with that is when it, the drugs affect or the immune cells attack the skin, you develop itching, you develop rash, which is usually manageable. But my research is very heavily focused also on understanding those toxicities and so those side effects. Mm -hmm. We are trying to understand why some patients have it or develop it and others don't. There are patients who have immunotherapy and have zero side effects. And there are patients who get immunotherapy and get many different immune side effects. Mm -hmm. So what's different, what's different about those patients? So we study what we call the clinical characteristics of those patients. We study what, what other drugs they're taking. We study uh, uh, their blood uh, and what markers, what inflammatory markers that they have that may be different than other patients. So most recently, we had publicly presented data on the role of vitamin D in preventing the development of immune colitis, uh, um, where we actually showed that in a group of patients who received immunotherapy, that the ones that were taking routinely vitamin D as their supplement um, actually were, were way less likely to develop immune-induced colitis. Um, this is just an example of the program and what we're trying to do because our hope to get to the point where we can prevent those side effects. Uh, by launching clinical trials to actually decrease the uh, likelihood of having side effects by, you know, maybe vitamin D eventually, maybe other uh, drugs. Uh, we have a very active program at the Brigham and Women Hospital in Dana-Farber where we're trying to mitigate those immune toxicities. And that's a very heavy area of research for us. And we work in collaboration with um, uh, nationally uh, and globally as well, uh, trying to work with our colleagues to understand this more. Are there any longer term goals and kind of end goals to finding out the information you're studying now? 
Yeah, so uh, the goals of, of our team research is one, to move immunotherapy to cancers where it has not worked traditionally. There is a big focus of my group trying to make this work in cancers like pancreatic cancer and colon cancer. We want to move the needle. Uh, we want those immunotherapy drugs to actually benefit more people, not just 30% of, of uh, lung cancer patients. We, we really truly want to understand why not 100% of patients mm -hmm. can benefit from that. And then a way to do that is trying to understand the biology and the immune biology of these tumors and why they, you know, these drugs work in some cancers and don't work in other cancers. And then lastly, we want we wanna to have a very good safety profile. So we want to prevent these side effects that's happening. So we wanted to have a balance where we maximize the benefit and minimize the risk when we do these drugs. We truly uh, want to change the field and move the field forward in terms of making cancer immunotherapy truly becoming um, really the front line as, as we, we treat any type of cancer. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Rama. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you. Next time on Think Research. It's a program that's just fantastic. The aim is to try to give opportunities to those students who normally wouldn't necessarily have uh, these kind of opportunities. Dr. Alex Lin returns to talk about the Harvard Catalyst Visiting Research Internship Program and the importance of mentoring in clinical and translational research. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.